Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Just a reminder that Big Mood, Little Mood with Daniel M. Lavery happens twice a week. Slate Plus members get an additional mini episode or Little Big Mood every Friday. Sign up now to listen at slate.com slash mood. Welcome back to Big Mood, Little Mood. I am your host, Daniel M. Lavery, and with me in the studio this week is my guest, Angelica Jade Bastien, a Southern-born critic and essayist for New York Magazine site Vulture. She lives in Chicago with her tuxedo cat, Professor Butch Cassidy. She also lives in Chicago with, at, at present counting, three superfluous cats that she has had to take in in a hurry. So if anyone in the Chicagoland area is listening to this and has been thinking... I can really use a cat. Angelica, could I send them your way? Uh, hell yeah, you can. Please <laughs> take these beautiful, well-behaved, very quiet tuxedo cats off my hands that my mom left with me um, because she had to evacuate Hurricane Ida and then just decided, I guess, that she couldn't take them home. I don't know what to say about her. <laughs> Listen, if you have a loving yet complicated relationship with your own mother, or if you just like cats, Angelica is the one to turn to, and you could potentially help find a home for some very fancy little gentlemen, it sounds like. Yeah, very fancy gentlemen. Uh, Their names are Judah, Levi, and Jude Law. (laughs) I love that the shift went from biblical to, I guess, it boys of the 1990s who later parlayed their good looks into being something of a character actor in later life. Yeah, and this totally turns me on as a critic. So, you know, big Jude Law fan. I was like, Jude Law, this is this cat's name now. That's amazing. I remember back in like 2010 when Jude Law started doing interviews about how glad he was that he was getting older. And it was like, for a couple of years, all he would do was be in interviews where he was like, thank God I'm ugly now. And he'd be like, Jude Law, do you think maybe you're overstating it a little bit? But he was like, I'm no longer ruined by beauty. People can look at me now. Uh, don't even get me started about male actors, you know, moving through Hollywood who are attracted to some degree and like have a weird relationship with their beauty because I guess they feel... I don't know, maybe the way some women feel far more often, which is viewed through the lens of the body and beauty in a very specific manner. Also, Jude Law, you knew you were still hot. We saw the young Pope. Okay, I saw you in in that little um, white getup, eyeing the camera like you wanted to fuck it. I'm not stupid. It was just so funny that like, oh, at last I've been freed from my prison. And it was just like, I mean, yeah, your hairline's not where it was in 1997, but... But no one's is. 
No one's is. No one's. I guess like if you are going from like if you could have been cast as Dickie Greenleaf, whose mm. whole thing is just like unattainable mm. male beauty that inspires murderous rage and longing in others. I, I guess that that's a a sort of dynamic that I can't really understand. Like I've never been so good looking that someone would say like, oh, let me cast you in a tale of obsession and Italy. Um, maybe it really is that big a deal to shift from being luminously beautiful to simply very, very good looking. Oh, whatever. You know, ridiculously beautiful people, get over yourselves, okay? <laughs> I whatever. I do hope I love that someday... Please. <laughs> I, I hope very much someday you and I can do a limited run series where we interview a series of, like, luminously beautiful men with two very different approaches, one of which is like, oh, come on, and the other is which, what's it like? Are you okay? Can I bring you lavender? Like, whenever I see Leonardo DiCaprio, I always want to be like, what was it like for 2003 to take away the last of your beauty? Now you're just a human man. A human man who likes to date much, 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 much younger women. Yeah. Listen. Have fun with that. if, If he still looked like the Archangel Raphael, and wanted to date much, much, much younger men, I would be first in line. So (laughs) if you're listening to this alternate dimension, Leonardo DiCaprio, I I don't know where this is going. I need to move us on. I've taken us off in a really different direction. I love it, though. I I could have keep going. (laughs) We really will. I I really will hit you up later because I would love to interview uh, very, very handsome men with varying levels of like credulity and anger and resentment. That sounds hot. Yeah. You're so handsome. Why are you doing this to me? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Would you please be so good as to read our first question so that we can try to advise someone in need of whatever kind of help we can provide them? Oh, totally. Let's get into giving some great advice. Hopefully. We'll see. (laughs) Uh, Stay tuned, everyone. Uh, So our first letter is Frozen Out Friend. I am a woman in my 20s who has had some lost years due to finishing college, the pandemic, working, and transitioning which has resulted in a quiet social life dying out entirely. I never had a raucous group of friends, but instead a small, close circle. But over the years, we've amicably fallen out of contact. I have one friend in particular I'm hurt I've fallen out of contact with. Innocuous messages that I've hoped would spark a more engaging conversation, like the ones we used to have, never materialized. While I know it's likely impossible to pick up where we left off, I really miss our friendship. I have changed quite a bit since we last spoke, but our interests never really aligned anyways. We shared a common location and a way of thinking that often left us interpreting the world in the same light. I don't know whether it is better to leave our friendship on ice or try to satisfy some idealistic notion that what we had can withstand a long layoff. I'm sort of of two minds about this letter because Mm -hmm. on the one hand, I feel like I have a fairly straightforward answer to the like, 
immediate question, which is if you have a friend that you feel sad, you've fallen out of touch with, and the last three or four attempts to generate like a sort of innocuous conversation have fallen flat, the next step is to say, hey, I really miss you. You know, you don't, you you say something direct, like maybe they've had a hard pandemic, you know, maybe he's, he's like not up for a lot of innocuous conversations, but if he knew you missed him and wanted to catch up, he would respond. So, you know, leaving it on ice after just like three or four attempts to be like, Hey, did you see this? Like, that's not, you didn't tell him what was going on with you. Yeah. You didn't let him know what you needed. You didn't share anything important. You didn't make a request. So that I would say is my first suggestion. Mm, Definitely. Yeah. I, that was like my immediate thought, but I also kind of found some things about this letter interesting and, you know, um, listeners, uh, just a heads up, for people who don't actually know me, it may just be about 2 p.m. in the afternoon and I have to get back to work, but I've already smoked a joint. So this advice is going to be a ride and I hope you enjoy it. I really do. I hope this is like like a really good Disney World ride, not necessarily backyard roller coaster ride where you may fall off and die. You know, hopefully it's a, a fun ride. Let's see what happens with some of my <laughs> Let's find out. I, I agree with you, Danny, that it's important for her to, you know, just, be, you know, just be upfront, say, I miss you. Like, I would love to talk or, you know, this pandemic, I mean, pandemic is a good way to get into things with everything because it's like, it's such an overbearing force on our lives. Um, you know, I guess for most people, um, unless you're like super ridiculously rich, I, I don't know how your life is going in that regard. Uh but, you know, I think it's an interesting dichotomy between leave friendship on ice or satisfy some idealistic notion. Like, why is that idealistic? Is that that idealistic? Isn't that just like something we should nurture? The idea that our relationships have value and can withstand the last few years of our lives, which I think for everyone has been really, really, really tough. Yeah, I think the idealistic line struck me too. And one of the things that I thought might be possible in this letter is, and this is something that I've certainly done, I think sometimes if someone has a particular relationship to vulnerability or the possibility of rejection, they are going to be more likely to send out what they see as like little test balloons rather than directly say what they want from someone else. And so my sort of thought there was like this letter writer is maybe worried that her friends have moved on from her or, you know, maybe reject her transition that seemed implied possibly Um, or just, you know, so instead of saying like, I miss you, I would love to have like a real talk. She sends out a little test balloon of like, if they respond to this cute little link or this little joke, then it'll be safe for me to venture something bigger. But this is my test balloon and I have to send it first. And, um, that's not to knock that strategy or say it's always a bad idea, yeah. but I th- I think it's important to realize it is a strategy. It is not the only way you can reach out. Exactly. And it's okay to be a little vulnerable, especially now. I think, I think people kind of appreciate it. Um, at least the people in my life do. I'm also someone who's never had like a large group of like, you know, friends, like I have acquaintances and whatever, but mostly it's like a really tight knit group of friends I have that I really trust and love. And that's also okay if that's the shape of your personal life. I think sometimes we beat ourselves up because our lives don't look a certain way with friendship. Like, you know, the always talking to them, always present best friend dynamic, you know, 
friendships change and shift and we change and shift with them and that's all good you know just be be willing to be a little bit more vulnerable i think and just up front and that's a good guiding principle in life yeah yeah i think the test balloon strategy can occasionally be useful but more often than not um if somebody doesn't respond to the test balloon the way that you had hoped that they would, the the test balloon sender in question will then say, mm. ah, I was right not to say what I was really thinking or feeling. Now's not the right time or they don't want to hear it. I basically just said, hey, if you respond to this gentle nudge, I'd like to share something with you. And they basically just said, don't bother. When in fact, that's not actually what happened. So yeah, again, not to say letter writer, like this is your fault. You should have been sending more, you know, emotionally intimate messages to your friends. And that's why you've fallen out of contact. I don't mean that at all. I just mean it's totally normal and appropriate to send him another message. Um, feel free to do the same thing with your other friends. Um, and it doesn't all have to be like bearing your soul. It can just be, hey, I was thinking of you lately. It makes me sort of sad that we have fallen out of touch. I really value our friendship. I really care about you. I would love to hear more about how you're doing and catch up. Hopefully at least one or two of them will, you know, say, that sounds great. Um, and if some of the others say something kind of vague or like, sure, let's do that, but then they never follow up, that might also be sad or hurtful, but at least you will know that you tried. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And so I just think, I think the odds are good that if you say that to specifically this friend and also potentially the rest of that close group, you will get you know, a pretty warm response. And even if that doesn't mean you go back to that same group permanently, it will maybe at least make you feel a little bit more at ease at the possibility of also like, you know, doing the whole Girl Scouts, make new friends and keep the old thing. <laughs> Man, I was a terrible Girl Scout. That's, uh, love the cookies though. Y'all great for those cookies, but ooh, I, ooh, I, mm, terrible. I was in brownies for one year and I was also in, I think there's like a religious, com like, um, counterpart called the Awana Cubbies, or at huh. least there were in Southern California. And all I can remember is the most terrifying snatch of a song that was like, we are Awana Cubbies. We're happy all day long. Something about Jesus. That's why I sing this song. And I'm just like, what were we up to? I was like six. What a weird thing yeah, to teach creepy. a six-year-old. Yeah. Kind of creepy. Mm, I don't like that. Don't trust Girl Scouts or cubbies or any of these things apparently. no uh, no in and theory i just hope i didn't like hallucinate that and someone's like no one's ever heard of the cubbies like you made that up then i will freak out i, I think you're all good in that department <laughs> i don't think you that would be wild though if you did mm, i mean strange. i just need you to know that i just googled it nothing showed up i don't feel great about that Okay, you're kind of scaring me here. Or maybe it's like I smoke too much. But, you know, one or the other. Paranoia? Yeah, you're right. I, I, I shouldn't try to put, like, confusing childhood <laughs> conspiracies on you in this time. You have four cats and you just smoked some weed. You've got a lot on your plate. Let me refocus. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So the subject here is do I qualify? 
I was recently applying for a job, and there was a question in the application about disabilities. There was an illustrative list of conditions as an example of what qualifies as a disability, and I was shocked to see something that I've been diagnosed with, fibromyalgia, on the list. While I'm in constant pain because of fibro, I have not requested accommodation at work, and I'm quite successful in my high-stress career. It hadn't occurred to me that I might have a disability. To the extent that I do qualify and would be a welcome participant in the community, I would like to join it, and I would like to advocate on behalf of those, brackets, of us, with disabilities in any event. However, most people with fibro suffer far more from it than I do, so I don't want to show up looking like a, quote, rich white lady who over-identifies, end quote, and doesn't even have it tough, ultimately causing more harm than good. Am I welcome in the conversation or in groups? Can I join slash help from the people with disability side of the table? Or would my participation be a bad thing? Obviously, I would be sensitive about participating in anything and I'd listen first. I've done extensive Googling, but I haven't found answers to my questions or even a place to ask them. I have no sense of which organizations are reputable and which are predatory or whether there's a place for me in the conversation. I'm at a loss for where I go from here, and I would be grateful for your thoughts on untangling this whole thing. Ooh. Yeah. I definitely got a sense here that we moved pretty quickly away from the original implicit question of, should I disclose during this job application, and then into, Mm -hmm. should I do something else? Does it strike you as more useful to maybe spend the first few minutes thinking about the original question? Or do you do you think it's sort of more interesting to, to follow the sort of like subsequent questions that arose for this letter writer? I'm wide open. I mean, I definitely think the latter approach, just because there's some really tangled issues here. Um, and certain things kind of like really popped out to me in the back half of the letter that they sent. Uh, especially that rich white lady um, who over-identifies bit. Yeah, let's let's start with that. That also kind of jumped out at me. So I, I'll be honest. I'm of two minds. I totally get what they're thinking. I totally get it. I am not a rich white lady, personally. I am a black Latina who is definitely not rich. I'm a writer and a critic. <laughs> That's you don't go into that for money. Um, but I will say, like. It feels like it's almost like a fear and an overcorrection, like of taking up any space with something that does affect your life. And I kind of worry that the letter writers maybe being a little too hard on themselves in a certain degree and, and needs to maybe take a little bit of a step back and think about how you would this is so corny, but like how you would talk to somebody else about this issue. Like, would you really tell somebody else, like a friend of yours who had fibromyalgia, like to whatever degree it was, and you would tell them, oh no, actually you don't qualify for that. And you trying to qualify for that means you're taking up somebody else's space. Like you can be in a room and not be the loudest voice in there. You know what I mean? There's a way to balance it out. It's not an all or nothing. I just kind of worry about that thinking. Yeah, I I think so too. I think that part of what leapt out to me there was that rich white lady was sort of um, implicitly being contrasted with the possibility of having a disability as if to say being a rich white lady is the opposite of having a disability. And um I don't want to spend too much time sort of speculating where that kind of mindset might come from. 
just because I think that could take us in a number of different directions that might not necessarily be useful to this letter writer. But, you know, letter writer, whatever, you know, identity categories you may inhabit or you may sort of like uh, assign certain priorities to, they are not, it's not about like positive and negative scores. Um, you know, disability doesn't make up for whiteness or vice versa, or like being a lady doesn't, uh, you know, decrease your points on another scale. So, you know, uh, to whatever extent this is useful to you, I would encourage you not to think of the possibility of having a disability as being in any sort of conflict with being a woman, being white, being rich. Um, they're simply things that describe you and you know, there are some wealthy people with disabilities. There are a lot more people with disabilities who are, you know, like constrained by government regulations not to have more than $2,000 in their bank account. You know, letter writer, you sound very concerned that you don't step on any toes. So I'm not too worried that you plan on like trying to sign up for, uh, you know, president of a local organization tomorrow without listening to other people. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, the letter writer also needs to find a local community or groups of people who deal with disabilities, especially, you know, hers. And maybe that could help, you know, her understand that, you know, we all exist at um, the crossroads of various identities and they don't necessarily cancel each other out and, and maybe kind of help her with her own journey. Um, Cause I think, you know, just some other perspectives are kind of needed. Um from people who really can understand what she's having to navigate politically, socially, physically in the job. I think that would be really helpful and important. Yeah. So maybe to start with, I will say letter writer, you know, this, I don't know what organization this was. I don't know exactly what that list entailed. My guess is they were just sort of like listing here are some possible responses or, or things that we're prepared to accommodate. Um, as, as you may know, uh, letter writer, the ADA, you know, for example, the American with Disabilities Act, um, doesn't have a list of if you have any of these conditions, you are disabled. And if you don't go away, um, there's a sort of general definition of disability that each person kind of has to meet. And it's usually sort of pegged to, does it substantially limit one or more sort of like major life activities? Um, is there a record attached to that, particularly a medical record? So it's, it's again, it's not just like, here's a list. And if you have it, you're in. And if you don't, you're not. Um, so one of the things I think the letter writer is sort of aware of is this sort of tension of, I do experience pain as a result of this like medical condition. I also am like high achieving and I have maybe been encouraged to think of that as like oppositional to thinking of myself as a disability, um, which you might want to, you know, investigate. Possibly joining some local like disability justice organizations might be a useful place to maybe critically rethink some of those assumptions. Um, but the, all, the only thing you're being asked to do right now, letter writer, is not whether or not you want to permanently announce, I am a person with a disability. This is how I want to move through the world. This is how I want to center my work. You're just being asked, do you want to disclose to this potential employer that you have fibromyalgia? My advice to you, letter writer, would be not to do so. You can. I, I would encourage you instead to wait until you have the job offer and then let them know if there are any accommodations that you think would be useful to you. You may very well be entitled to them, but I think that 
because uh, there are so many different ways that you can not get a job, um, I would encourage you, you know, they cannot fire you for disclosing a medical condition as easily as they can simply decline to hire you if you say, by the way, I have fibromyalgia and I think you should be looking out for yourself here. So I would say, say nothing. And then if you get the job and you do think either there is some accommodation or like work from home flexibility that I would appreciate, or I might in the future, you can then disclose to your boss and to HR, get documentation. Um, and then you would also have legal protections if there was any sort of retaliation. Mm. That is a really good point. Yeah, that got to protect yourself out there. Yeah, but that's all you're being asked to do is to consider about whether you might want to disclose that and or consider accommodations, which again, if you're used to thinking of yourself as like, quote, quite successful in a high-stress career, reading between the lines, part of what I got from that was some sense of it is either explicitly or implicitly valued in my field to push through it, to suffer in silence, to deal with any pain or exhaustion on your own without, quote unquote, bothering anyone. And maybe that is no longer serving you. Oof. Yeah, we all sometimes need to do those check-ins about what is and isn't serving us, about how we move through the world. And I think this is a good line of thought for the letter writer to kind of go down and really consider. Yeah. Um, and I guess my sort of last thought would be, yeah, I would encourage you to look at maybe certain groups that might exist in your area, certain groups that might exist at a national level. Um, you know, you can always sort of like check against the, I don't know, like Better Business Bureau or one of the various like charity or nonprofit uh, sort of like ranking services, as well as your own best judgment as to what you think is predatory. You know, again, I'm not really sure what a predatory I can imagine predatory behavior, obviously. I'm just not really sure. I, I don't know of offhand any any groups that I would say they say they're about helping people with fibromyalgia, but really they're they're gonna, you know, take your house or something. Um and then beyond that, I guess, you know, am I welcome in the conversation or in groups? What conversation and what groups? And yeah. what is welcome? Well, what does welcome mean to you? Does it mean everyone's really friendly and warm when you first show up? Does it mean no one objects to your presence? Does it mean you get along with everyone you see there? Does it mean you feel good? You know, yeah. um, it's not, a, I, I don't think I can answer like, yes, I can promise you everyone will welcome you or everyone will think of you in the same way that you think of yourself so much as, is that a community you want to be a part of? And who who interests you? What groups interest you? What work do you feel passionate about? And, and how can you seek it out, you know, rather than just like, yes, here is my ticket saying no one's going to get mad at you. Yeah. Life doesn't work like that, unfortunately, <laughs> um, with the, you know, guaranteed success entering a new group. Just doesn't work like that. You kind of, you know, you have to make the risk sometimes to get the reward you're looking for, just how it works with interpersonal dynamics. Yeah. And, and I wonder if some of this too won't lift a little bit if the letter writer does find other ways to like seek out community and solidarity work with other people like who work in specifically disability justice. Because some of this seems like the fear of the theoretical becoming the real. Like if I show up, will people assume that I am by showing up saying I'm just like everyone else. I see no difference between various disabilities. Uh, I mm. am the most important person in the room. I am making implicit claims about ways in which other people should think of themselves as being related to me. Um, and I, I, I would just be really surprised if you showed up and experienced such a hostile and suspicious culture. Um, I think it would be much 
much likelier that people would say like, oh, what's your name? What are you interested in? Great. It'll probably be chill. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I don't think people would assume that just by walking through the door, you'd be saying, everyone's just like me. We're all the same. That's just like my thing. You know, and that fear, I think, is one that I think will diminish when you actually show up and meet people um, and realize they're not looking for reasons to get mad at you. People rarely are, I think. And, you know, maybe the flip side of that is like this fear of I won't survive if people get mad at me. I need people to think of me as easy to get along with, friendly, not too full of myself. And if somebody for even a minute thought that, I'm not sure how I could handle it. Yeah, I I move very differently. I am probably the exact opposite of that. (laughs) Some ways ways good, some ways, I don't know. Uh, You know, but I get it. We all kind of making friends, making new connections, especially right now, is just really difficult. So I understand the apprehension from the letter writer and the sort of fear um, spiral. It sounds like they're in at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, there's there's like so many other different roads. I feel like we could go down on this one. Like, you know, letter writer, you also don't have to do any of those things. Like all yeah. you have to do is take care of your fibromyalgia. You are not, you know, doing something wrong if you're just like, look, I just want to like look after my pain management, do my job, enjoy my friends and my hobbies. That's what I would like to do right now. That's fine. That's yeah. not a bad thing. That sounds like a good life to me. Like, you know, it's totally fine to take in some information and decide, yeah, I'm good. I don't need to do anything about this. It's, you know. Yeah, I think beyond that, I'm going to go too far into different, like, speculations. I think we have pretty thoroughly thought through this one. So so we can leave her and, and wish her good luck. And also, yeah, always protect yourself when you're applying for jobs. I'm a little curious just because you talked about both sort of feeling you move through the world in sort of the opposite way, but then also it sounds like you're maybe tweaking that right now or rethinking uh, some of that. I'm sort of curious to know, are are you in the middle of a sea change yourself? Oh, damn. That is an understatement. I don't, like looking back <laughs> where my, like the last few weeks, like I'll just be blunt. I'm like, getting out of a relationship that became emotionally abusive like or it was confirmed to be it was rekindling with an ex and it proved to be a very bad idea but it was a lesson I needed to learn about trusting my instincts and not ignoring every red flag slapping me in the face literally slapping me in the face uh I've reconnected this year with my brother um who I had been estranged from for 10-12 years um, so that's like really heavy <laughs> mm. and just like I'm, you know, there's other family stuff that's really come out um, in the wake of my grandma's death this year, losing my cat Paul to cancer out of nowhere. He was only four and a half years old um, and like the sweetest, kindest, most affectionate cat I've ever met and like so beautiful. His name was Paul Newman and I miss him very much. You have um, great cat names. Can I just say? You know, it's like one of my skills, baby. You know, I just got that that let's name a cat power. <laughs> I have no idea why. Um, very low level superpower, but it's there and I work it. Um, yeah, so I'm just like really rethinking a lot of things in life right now. And this is like me. I, I'm 
there's other things that are going on that are just a little like, how am I supposed to deal with all of this? I don't, I don't know how to process most of what I'm dealing with. So I'm going to make a list of stressors in my life right now and decide what I have to put aside for the moment and what I can actually have the bandwidth to focus on. Because, you know, there's also my job and, you know, maintaining friendships and paying bills and all the other things that come with being an adult who lives in this world, navigating the pandemic. And the thing is, like, I know I'm not alone in this feeling going through of going through a sea change, to use your terminology. So many of my friends are dealing with a lot, too. And it's just been like, I don't know, the vibe is just heavy. The vibes are heavy out there. And I'm just, you know, I'm trying to get it together and also rely on the simple pleasures of life of, you know, a good meal, listening to some music when I'm high, watching some Star Trek Deep Space Nine, maybe, um, watching a Billy Wilder film, you know, something that makes me excited and for a moment brings me a a measure of pleasure, you know, because it's hard out there. And I think the pleasure principle is kind of important right now. Yeah, I... I, I I apologize if this feels too on the nose, but it also just feels like Billy Wilder is, I think, a wonderful, wonderful touchstone for uh, I'm going through a lot and I want something light, but with the kind of lightness that comes from an awareness of how dark things can get quite quickly. Exactly. Exactly. And, and you know, even within his comedies, you know, I have probably the movie I've rewatched most during this pandemic is probably Some Like It Hot. It's it's just so easy to fall into, and I always see something new every time I watch it. But, you know, even in that movie, which is such a confection in many ways, there there's touches of darkness, sometimes like straight up, like people get murked <laughs> in the beginning of the movie. Uh, but also, you know, Marilyn Monroe's character has a sweet melancholy to her that I find very touching and I really connect with. I'm, anybody who knows me knows I am... Marilyn Monroe is like an obsession of mine. I have a few, quite a few obsessions. She is one of them. I'm looking at a huge stack of uh, Marilyn Monroe books right now, including Marilyn Monroe and Appreciation by Eve Arnold, uh, a photographer who shot her uh, quite a bit, including on the set of The Misfits. So, and it's like beautiful color photography, sometimes black and white, but what was really striking is the intimacy. And I don't know how y'all are feeling out there, but intimacy is something that's become way more important to me since this pandemic has kicked off. And really considering how it looks and how I want it to look in my life has been an interesting journey lately. Yeah. And, you know, gosh, you know, again, as touchstones go, if you want to think about different relationships to intimacy, and to both the sort of like careful um, extending of intimacy or the withholding of intimacy, Marilyn Monroe is a pretty great touchstone to pick. There's there's some real layers there. I was just thinking oh, about this totally. actually yesterday. One of my favorite of her movies is is Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, and I also oh. love the Anita Loose novel that it's based on. Um, yes. And the other day, I was walking down my block, and somebody had left out a bunch of free books and. The, the reissue of Gentlemen Prefer Blondes was one of them. And I was as tempted to take a free book as I have ever been because I was like, man, I lost my copy in one of my moves. And I don't know if you've ever read it, but it's just Mm-mm. basically, 
you know, it's very short, maybe a hundred pages, and it's just a monologue of the Marilyn Monroe character uh, describing Ooh. everything happening to a girl such as I. Um, and it is enchanting. I need to lose news what she was about. Yeah, that does sound quite enchanting. And I mean, it's already an enchanting, g- gorgeous film. You know, Jesus. Wow. Cinema. I, um, cinema, indeed. I, I love cinema. Love? <laughs> I love it. I recently, I um, I recently watched this short film um by Wong Kar Wai called The Hand. Have you ever seen it? It was. Uh, it's funny because my ex introduced me to this movie, but I don't give a fuck. Okay, I love this movie. You're not going to ruin it for me. But really, the. the <laughs> I'm not joking with you. The movie is basically about the power of a hand job and the romanticism that can come from it. And it has Gong Li as the woman giving the hand job. Um, it's very erotic and like, and the dude is a tailor who works for her, and they have like like this intense tension. Oh, mm. it, it's just juicy and fascinating and sad towards the end. Um, but it also made me think, I don't know, intimacy and desire just keeps coming up in like the stuff I'm watching in my free time. I don't know. I'm just kind of gravitating towards the juicy, seductive, very textured works right now, I think. That sounds remarkable. I should take a break from, uh, obsessively rewatching the women for one evening and give that a watch. (laughs) That has been my return vehicle throughout quarantine. It's just so good. It's been a few weeks since I watched the women. I should Man, watch the women. Joan Crawford. You know, Joan Crawford is that, she is that girl, okay? She will give you some noir. She will give you some gorgeous technicolor, weird neo-western with Nicholas Ray at the helm. She will <laughs> give you flapper. She will give you absolute camp, but camp does not wholly define her, which is something that I think is very important to remember about Joan Crawford. Big she shout is. out to Joan Crawford. Um, All, I mean, the whole cast is, it is a murderer's row of a cast. Uh, yes. But Joan Crawford, I think for just like pure over-the-topness, when she's carrying all those perfume bottles and she has that quick comeback line to her colleague of just like, because I'm all the baby he needs. Um, <laughs> it's just <laughs> such a highlight to me uh, of that movie, uh, which is nothing but highlights. It's two and a half hours of highlights. Oh, totally. Totally. It's funny. I've, I think I've watched more Joan Crawford movies in the pandemic than Betty Davis ones. And I'm more of a Betty Davis head, which again, you know, I have my thing for a complicated women and throughout cinema (laughs) i finally saw now voyager after putting it off for years because you know it's um i i have a complicated relationship to that kind of melodrama and um but this is the height of it this is it at its like best like this is what it can do it's also just hard for me to imagine, like, man, if your version of the best possible life is I'm almost in a relationship with Paul Henreid, it's hard for me to get worked up about it. I will say I, I like what has always drawn me to that film is its relationship and and interrogation of a very complicated mother-daughter relationship, one, and mm-hmm. two, someone who's obviously dealing with a mental health struggle and like how you can remake yourself. That's what interests me more than 
the love story, which I do find touching. I I do really, really love the ending. I also believe like that ending, like a week later, they're fucking again. They're fucking oh, again. You know, things are There's not no well. way they're things not fucking. Things are not well, but yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think you're right because those scenes where she like tremulously tries to light a cigarette is mm. like, that's a movie on its own. Betty Davis trying to stay composed, lighting a cigarette, putting on a brave face. I'd watch 10 hours of that. I would too. I mean- Betty Davis and her cigarettes, that woman knew how to use that those cigarettes as a prop in like the best way possible. She did. Uh, okay. I think we have advised people as much as we can for today. How do you feel? I feel powerful and very hungry. Well, I, uh, I hope that you have some wonderful snacks in mm-hmm. your near future. Oh, I will. I'm, I'm going to tear some stuff up in the kitchen <laughs> like the moment we get off this. Good. And again, if any of you are listening uh, in or around the greater Chicagoland area and you've been thinking lately, I sure would like a cat. I am your girl. I'm Angelica Bastian on Twitter. So, you know, like seriously, DM me or something if you're interested in a cat and you're not unhinged. Thank you. Angelica, thank you so, so much. Uh, I certainly feel less unhinged as a result of our conversation today. I do too. Have a fabulous rest of your day. Thank you. You too, darling. Thanks for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up, to subscribe, or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Also, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you get a minute. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice and conversations and interview questions with our guests. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $1 for your first month. If you need some little advice or big advice and you'd like me to read your letter on the show, head to slate.com slash mood to find our big mood, little mood listener question form or find a link in the description of the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. One thing I've had to like really let go of as a writer and just human being is just like, writing and existing from a place of uh, of hyper awareness of being perceived and how people perceive me and like you know as someone who has gotten their fair share of heat online for things I've written after a certain point you kind of have to let go of it you have to let go of all that shit it it doesn't serve you yeah and if if you want to write something that is available for public reading people are going to have reactions to it that by definition you cannot control And that's not to say, like, if everyone treats you horribly, that's on you. I just mean, like, some people might not give you the benefit of the doubt in the ways that you wish that they would, or they might not think about you in the way that you would like them to. But that is one of the things that you have to kind of figure out, okay, because I cannot control other people's reactions to me, especially at a larger scale, uh, what can I do instead? To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood.